Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Today, we're starting a new series, and um, if you couldn't tell from the stuff that's on stage, it's a little different. Uh, we normally don't have a riot shield on stage. You know, people don't get that rowdy here, but uh, maybe, I guess, I don't know. Uh, but tonight, we're starting a new series called The Art of War, and this series is all about the fact that we, whether you realize it or not, are in a battle, and uh, I think you recognize it in some ways, but, but the truth is we have an enemy, and the enemy is out to destroy us, and the enemy will do everything he can to destroy us and to undermine us and to take away our character and our credibility, to undermine our faith in our God, and he will do anything he can to destroy us. And what we see in Scripture is uh, laid out in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, a defense system that Paul talks to the Ephesian church about and says, hey, here's how you can defend yourself against the schemes of the enemy. Because every one of you in this room, you might not recognize the fact that there's a spiritual war happening that you're involved with, with, with whether you know it or not, but there are days that you definitely feel like you are under attack. And you might call it bad luck, you might say, this just isn't my day, but the truth is, and I, please understand my heart, just because you get a sniffle doesn't mean that the enemy gave you the sniffle, okay? Just because you have a blowout on your tire doesn't mean the enemy gave you a blowout on your tire, and if you had more faith, you wouldn't get a blowout. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is um, the world is out to get you as a believer in Jesus Christ, and what we have to do is understand that, and we have to prepare for the battle that's coming our way, because if we don't, um, we will be in trouble. Understand this. Our battle is not against a political party. I was hoping, yeah, thank you, Ricky. He's on staff, so that one doesn't count. <laughs> I want to say this again. Our battle is not against a political party. Amen. Thank you. Our battle is not against another church. Amen. Our battle is against the enemy of our soul. People that are not believers are not our enemies either. We're in a rescue boat, and we're in the middle of an ocean trying to rescue people. And, and what we do sometimes is we make them the enemies, but they're, they're not the enemies at all. But we do have an enemy, and what this series is about is how do we defend ourselves against the enemy? And not just defend ourselves, but how do we push back against the darkness in our community, in our world? How do we push back against the agenda that the enemy has for us and for our church and for our family and for our people? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be camped out in Ephesians chapter 6, and, um, and so I would encourage you, if you don't read scripture very often, this would be one I would encourage you, go back and read through this a few times and get this in your spirit. Uh, but it will start in Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, and Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, I want you to notice that he doesn't say if the day of evil comes. He says when it comes, because it is coming. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand. Stand firm. Then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with the feet, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, 
which you can extinguish, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So tonight, we're going to start with verse 14, and we're just going to go systematically through the different pieces of armor that Paul prescribes to us as believers and says, this is required to defend yourself. Because again, he doesn't, he doesn't equivocate when he's talking about being prepared. He, he makes it very clear, there's a battle coming and you need to be ready for it. See, we do ourselves a disservice when we say, hey, I'm flying under the enemy's radar. My life is just going to be fine. I'm not, making, I'm not making too much headway. I'm not showing off. I'm not falling behind. That was kind of my strategy when it came to school. I'm not showing off. I'm not making A's. I'm not making F's. I'm in the meaty part of the curve. And sometimes we live our lives spiritually that way as well. We, we believe if we just do okay... Mic switch. It's like a pit stop, like NASCAR right there. We feel like if we're doing okay, we're not going to get the enemy's attention. But the truth is, you already have the enemy's attention because you're a child of God. And so what we have to do is know that a battle is coming our way. So let me start with Ephesians 6, 14. It says, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Um, over the last few weeks, last few months, I've talked a little bit about the fact that I've lost some weight, and uh, my belts look differently than they used to, um, because some of my belts, they look like they had been tortured. <laughs> they were hanging on for dear life on that last hole on the belt loop, you know what I'm talking about? And, um, and I've experienced new life with my belts, because I'm, I'm exploring holes on my belt that I haven't explored in a long, long, long time. And so my, my belt is thankful for that. And, um, and I was thinking back, as I was thinking about this, this message, the, the belt of truth, um, for me, belts, belts are functional. For some people, belts are, um, they're, they're simply for looks. But for me, like, I need belts because uh, right now, especially, my pants are saggy. Okay, I'm just going to get personal with you. It's Saturday night. We're just, we're just being real here. The other night, um, I saw myself walk on stage or something like, oh, no, no, I was on stage, and I turned right now, and I noticed how saggy my pants are. And I thought, oh, good Lord, I look like that all the time. Anyway, that's a good thing, though. But I need a belt. To hold, they're functional. And so sometimes when we look at this passage, we go, okay, is the belt, yeah, yeah, we get it, the belt of truth. Truth, it's important, we need it. Got it, Mel. Let's move on. Um, but a belt was really important. It was really functional. When, when I was younger, a belt wasn't as functional. It was for looks. Does anybody, if you're around my age, you might remember this. I'm, I'm almost 42. I'll be 42 in just a couple weeks. Um, but if you're around my age, you might remember a, a fad in the 90s. Does anybody remember Z Cavarici jeans? A few of you? Oh, these were the worst things ever. And we thought they were awesome. They were so cool. Tapered legs, pleated jeans. This is denim, by the way. Pleated with big, it was god awful. It was horrible. And I had to finish the ensemble with, uh, and it didn't matter what I was wearing. If I was wearing a t-shirt, that baby's tucked in because I got to show off my belt. And I would have this great braided belt. Does anybody remember braided belts? And it was so long, like I could probably use it now, but it was so long that you would wrap it through the belt and down and it would hang down like a fashion accessory. Like, hey, what's up, girl? You like my braided belt? 
with my Z Cavaricci jeans. I got to make sure it doesn't fall into the pleat there. I'll pull it out of the pleat. Oh, it was horrible. It was terrible. I promise if I had the picture, I would show you. I'm not that proud. But that's what I thought of when I thought of belts. But that is different than what we're thinking of when it comes to this, because when, it, when we look at the belt of truth, this is something that is highly functional for us. Um, it seems basic, but it really is important. The belt was important for a Roman soldier. Let me, let me say this too. Um, we talked a while back, and depending on what version of Scripture you read, it might say um, that your loins are girded up with the belt of truth. And the Hebrew army, they typically wore tunics. And what they would do, and I've talked about this before, what they would do when they were preparing for battle is they would pull their tunics up, they would pull them on the front, and they would tuck them through their legs and tie them in the front. So it basically became like shorts is what they looked like. Uh, but it was functional for battle. And so when you hear the words, gird up your loins in Scripture, and so some of your passages might say that depending on what version you're reading, it's twofold. Number one is a very specific meaning to literally pull your tunic up and get ready for battle. But then there's a broader sense that it's used as well that it means get ready because something's about to happen. And so if your version of scripture in Ephesians 6.14 says, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, then what it's talking about is, hey, stand firm knowing that something's about to happen and you better be ready for action. Does that make sense? And so when we see this, it says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, what it's saying is you need to be ready for something important because the belt is not some ancillary piece of equipment. It is very important to do what you're supposed to do when God's calling you. And in this battle, the belt would hold the scarab, and the scarab is the, the, the sleeve that would hold the sword. And so if you went into battle without your belt, you're more than likely going into battle without your sword as well. Um, it would hold your sword and, and other tools and other items uh, that were necessary for the battle. So the belt was important for that. The belt also had leather that would drape down. This is Paul's describing what would be used in the Roman army, uh, a more modern army compared to the Hebrew army. And, and so when he's talking about the belt, if you look at pictures, a lot of times Roman soldiers had a, a piece of fabric, like leather, that would hang down. Sometimes it would be strips of leather that would help protect their lower body as well. And so it was functional to help protect them, not just hold their pants up. Uh, the last thing that it did that was pretty significant is that the belt, belt helped secure all the other pieces of armor in some way or fashion. Because the belt did what it was supposed to do, it helped every other piece of armor function the way it was supposed to function. So what I'm saying is, what Paul, Paul didn't accidentally start with the belt of truth. He started with the belt of truth on purpose because he understood if we don't have a good grasp of truth, and maybe this is a better way of saying it, if, if truth doesn't have a good grasp on us, then our defenses are going to be useless. Then, then we are sitting ducks for the enemy and his schemes in our lives. So before we do anything else, we need to make sure that truth is solid, that truth has us. And in the book of John, um, the word truth is used more in the Gospel of John than in any other book of the Bible. Uh, it's used over and over and over and over again. And one of the reasons we see this is when John was writing the story uh, of the Gospel of, of Jesus Christ, he was writing to multiple audiences. So Matthew was writing primarily to Jewish people, uh, but John was writing to, um, to Greeks and Jews and Gentiles and people that were um, influenced by Gnosticism and all kinds of different 
philosophies of the day and age. And so he was writing to a broad audience. And what we see is he uses this word truth over and over and over because every person in that day and age had a different basis for what truth is. And we live in a day and age today that truth is pliable. That's why (laughs) we won't get political, but that's why politics gets so weird because both sides think they know the truth. No, I know the truth. No, I know the truth. Well, my truth is more truth, right? It's truthier than your truth is. The The reality is the truth seems pliable. And so what John was attempting to do was cut through all that in that day and age and go, no, 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 let me tell you something. There is a truth that supersedes all of the truths, and it's the truth of Jesus Christ. And he uses this word over and over and over in the Gospels. And so we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time in the book of John tonight as well. In John 1.14, I talked about this passage over our Christmas Eve services, and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see that Jesus came as a, as a carrier as a vessel of grace and truth. In verse 17, it goes on to say, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is defined by grace and truth. We even see Jesus make this bold statement in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do you think this statement by Jesus would be received in the culture we live in today? In the culture we live in today, it says, hey, every road to heaven is equally viable as long as you're sincere. As long as you really believe what you believe, all roads lead to heaven. That's what Oprah would tell you. Okay? I'm sorry to tell you that is not the truth. Because what Jesus says is, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no other except me. Can you imagine how, how the media would tear him apart for making such a bold claim about himself and, and being so exclusive? Because we live in a culture that says, no, 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 everybody, oh, we love you, and yours is perfect. It's okay to believe that. Come on in, buddy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. There is one way, there is one truth, and there is one life, and I am him. Winston Churchill said this. He said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. So we live in a world that longs for truth, but we long for a truth that fits our criteria and fits our needs and fits our desires and fits our worldview. And so when we're confronted with a Jesus, with a truth that doesn't line up with everything we want, we immediately go, well, something's wrong with that. Or we'll say, well, you know what, I'm going to disregard that part of Scripture so that it makes me feel better about my life. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches because he is truth. Now, i got a belt on tonight. I'm not going to show you my belt. (laughs) You don't need that uh, visual. But if I was wearing a belt tonight to help me hold up these saggy pants um, and, and the belt had actually been cut in two, it would not do a very good job, would it? A, a belt has to be one continuous piece. It's fastened to itself. It has to be a congruent whole. And if it's not, then it's not going to perform its job. And some of us want truth in our lives, but we want to dissect it all the different ways we want to dissect it. And as a result, 
It can't do its job in our lives. The belt was supposed to anchor the soldier. It was supposed to help secure the, the soldier's armor. And when we live a life that our truth is segmented and divided between our politics and our own personal worldviews and what we want and, and our secret sin that we don't tell anybody about, then all of a sudden we're wearing a belt that has been chopped up into pieces and it cannot perform its, its role, its responsibility, its duties any longer. But we live this way and we wonder why it's a problem. Because we say things like, well, that's true for you. <laughs> I don't always bring up world events, but I will tell you, I was heartbroken. This last week I read an article that there was a pastor in Toronto at the United Church of Canada. Uh, she had been pastoring her church for quite a while, and she admitted to her church from stage that she no longer believed in God, that she was an atheist. And the governing body of the church is allowing her to continue as, her, as the pastor of the church. And my, my heart is grieved because <laughs> what is the standard for truth in that body? If we can't say Jesus is truth any longer, then it's a free-for-all. It's whatever you want to do, buddy. As long as you, hey, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're nice, we're all going to get into heaven. And what we see very clearly Jesus say is, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So this is what we have to understand. The truth is active in us as believers, and it does something in us as believers. And the first thing I would tell you tonight, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first thing it does in us is it sets us free. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And if you will know the truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, even unbelievers have heard this verse. It's quoted in movies. Um, it's, it's part of pop culture. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's easy to say something like that, but it's another thing to try to live it out, isn't it? Um, because the reality is many of us are terrified of the truth. Many of us hope the truth never comes out because we say things like, if they knew what I really thought, they wouldn't be my friends. If they knew about my past, they'd never accept me. There's a literal phobia that people have um, it's one of the most highly diagnosed phobias in the United States right now, and it's fear of being found out that you're a fraud. And it's because people have put up an image of themselves on social media or in society, and they know I can't live up to that. And so they live with this fear, this tension in their lives that if people find out that's not who I really am, I'm going to lose it all. All the esteem, all the prestige, my friends, my relationships, we live with this tension in our lives that I'm a slave to. Because if they know the truth, I won't be loved. I won't be accepted. I won't be what I want to be. Well, what we have to understand is that fear of the truth is actually enslaving us. It's enslaving us to live a life that is below the standard that God dreamed for us to live. Um... <laughs> I don't know at your job if your boss does annual reviews. And we do annual reviews at Summit Church. And it's, it's not funny, but it's, it is sort of funny because I don't review annually. Like, 
If there, I've got a problem with a staff member, if there's an issue or there's a performance thing, like I'm going to pull the staff member in and go, hey, let's talk about this. Is everything okay? This is what I see. Let's talk through this together. Because I've been reviewed at the end of the year where they go, okay, Mel, I want to let you know about something. In July, you really stunk it up. And I'm like, wait, July? This is December. Why are you just telling me now? And they're like, well, you know, it's your review, so I'm letting you know that you're pretty, you're pretty bad. And I'm like, well, thanks. I appreciate that. That doesn't help you. But those reviews can be terrifying, can't they? So some of our staff, it's funny because they, they will get nervous and it's like, I've already talked to you about the stuff I'm going to talk to you about. And, you know, you already know because I reviewed you eight months ago when there was an issue, but now we're just going to talk about the year. And it really does turn out okay. But there's this, this feeling of, oh gosh, they're going to speak to me about truth or what they perceive or what they feel, and I don't like that. Um, my personality type is such that I like truth. And not that you don't like truth, but I, I like feedback. And I'm weird like that. I like people going, hey, did you know you've got a problem with this? No, I did not know I have a problem with that. Now I can fix that problem. Um, and so my personality type likes that. It kind of thrives on that. But not everybody is like that because we want to feel comfortable. We want to feel at ease. And what we see Jesus say, what we see Jesus say here is, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now there's two things I want you to see here. The, the word truth here, it's, a, it's the Greek word Aletheia, and it means um, what is true in any manner, in any matter under consideration. What is true in any matter under consideration. So if you can consider it, this is true. So what Jesus says is, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know what is true in any circumstance, and that will allow you to be free. Now, now this is the thing. Um, if, if I had a problem that I didn't recognize but everybody else did, I would be a slave to that and not even know it. But if somebody comes to me and goes, hey, Mel, <laughs> let me give you an example. This is off the cuff. I was at a gas station one day. I was pumping gas. And I look over and I hear this noise and this woman pulls in in the pump <laughs> next to me. And I look over and her brake pads are on fire. I go, hey, hey, whoa, 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 hey, you know your brake pads are on fire. And she goes, uh, and she looked, and like they're smoking like fire. And she goes, oh, yeah, I saw that. And she's doing nothing about it. And I go, can I help you with it? So I grabbed a bottle of water and put it on there. And I said, is everything okay? And yeah, well, I don't know why I would have done that. And I said, is your emergency brake on? <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> she had driven for miles with the emergency brake on. If she hadn't stopped at the gas station and had some dude say, hey, your car's on fire, she would have kept driving down the highway with that situation. But because she could recognize, hey, this is truth. Somebody's telling me my car's on fire. I can fix the problem. Now, some of us are so afraid of truth that we would rather live with a problem than have somebody say, hey, your car's on fire and let us fix it. And this is the beauty of Christ, because what Jesus does is he will reveal truth to us. But remember what we said earlier, he's full of truth and grace. He will speak truth to us, but he'll say it full of grace with the purpose of reconciling us back to him. He never speaks truth to us to punish us. He always speaks truth to us to reconcile us. That is his heart. 
that lady. You would have thought when she said that, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, no big deal. My car's on fire. You know, she was playing it cool. But come on, how many times do we do the same thing? Our lives are falling apart, but we put up a good front. We make things look good, but the truth is we're a mess. The truth is we're falling apart. The truth is we're hurting. And we just need to be honest with someone. We just need to speak truth to someone or hear truth from someone. But it's so hard and it's so terrifying. So Jesus says, I am the truth. Hey, if you're my disciple, if you're my follower, if you abide in me, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We desperately need freedom in our lives. And I would tell you this, we're, um, we've got another series of small groups starting in a few weeks here at Summit, and we're going to have some groups that are all about freedom. Um, I would love for you to check out one of those groups if that's something you struggle with at all. And it doesn't mean you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, uh, but maybe it just means you got some things that you know, I got to work through this a little bit. That's okay. That's perfect. Um, I've been through the Freedom Course. All of our staff has. We've got about, a, I don't know, about 150 or 80 people in our church that have gone through it, and it's fantastic. I would encourage you to get connected with that when small groups roll around. There's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, his name is John Piper. And John Piper said this, Jesus alone can free us from these two kinds of slavery, the domination and damnation of sin. Now, this is what he describes, and I'll get back to this quote in just a moment. Uh, he says that we are enslaved by the domination of sin, and this is where we have habitual sin in our lives that, that um, well, let me make it simpler. Anything that has a higher level of affection from our hearts, then Christ is sinful. Some of you hate that definition a lot, I'm sorry. Anything in our lives that we give more devotion or affection to than Christ is sinful, okay? So it's not just, did you kill somebody? Or are you cheating on your spouse? Or those kind of things. But, but the domination of sin is when my affection is directed anywhere more primarily than it is to Christ. And then he, he says the damnation of sin, and this is ultimately where that sin leads us is to an eternity separated from God. Now, when we talk about hell, we talk about fire and, you know, brimstone and sulfur, gnashing of teeth, but the worst part of hell will not be any of those things. The worst part of hell is eternal separation from a holy, righteous, benevolent God. And so what Piper says is Jesus frees us from these two kinds of slavery. He goes on to say this, he frees us from the damnation of sin by becoming a damnation for us. So he takes on our sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he goes on to say this, and he frees us from the domination of sin by changing our nature at the root through the new birth. So when we become believers, he, he begins to change our nature. He begins to change who we are fundamentally. And the essence of it is that he gives us eyes to see that our Savior is more to be desired than anything in the world. So as we begin to grow in our faith, we begin to have eyes that see there is nothing in my life that deserves my heart more than Jesus Christ. And he frees us, he liberates us in these things. So the first thing we see is that truth sets us free. The second thing we see is that truth sanctifies us. And truth, saying it sanctifies us sounds so churchy. Um, 
But, but let me read this passage to you. This is from the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in, in uh, John 17. And just so you know, we're going to do a series on this, this passage um, in John 17. Uh, he, oh, in the month of February, we'll start that. But uh, such a powerful prayer that Jesus prays. And in John 17, 17, he's praying for us and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is really just a, a fancy way, a church way of saying um, to, to grow in our faith or to become who God wants to become, to be shaped more into his likeness. If you want to look at the, the exact definition according to Scripture, uh, the Greek word for sanctify here is hakiazo, and hakiazo means to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. Now, this sounds like this is the part of the message where I go, now, this is where you bring all your secular music forward, and you can't talk to your friend who curses anymore, and you can't go to any more PG-13 movies or rated R movies, and you've got to, that's not what this is talking about, setting aside profane things for holy things. What it's really talking about is us understanding our purpose, because God doesn't sanctify us just to make us holy. God sanctifies us for a sanctified purpose. He makes us holy for a holy purpose. God prepares us for a work that he wants us to do and be a part of. Um, there, there's a passage I want to share with you. It's in e oh, hold on. My, my notes went up. Let me go back. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, talking about God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we were made by God through Jesus, and the purpose that we were made was for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So think about it this way. Before you were even a glimmer in your parents' eyes, before the beginning of time, God said, oh man, there's going to be a person living in Indiana, Pennsylvania in January of 2019, and man, I've got a purpose and a plan for them, and I've got something incredible for them, and I can't wait for them to be a part of it. But they've got to be submitted to my purposes, because if they're not, they can't do it, because the plans I have are holy. They're set, set aside. They're sanctified. And it doesn't mean, doesn't mean God can't use us, but God can't use us if we're not submitted to his purposes and plans. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for submitted people. And so when we say, God, I'm not perfect. I'm still working through this stuff. I still need help. But God, I'm submitted to you. Then God says, yeah, come with me. I'm going to begin working in your life. I've got, a, I've got good work for you to do. Not someday when you figure all your stuff out. Not someday when you get your life perfect, when your marriage is perfect, when your finances are perfect, then I can use you. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to use you while I'm working in you. And that's the process of sanctification in our lives. He has a work for us to do, something incredible that he's inviting us to be a part of, but we can't be part of it if we go, no, 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 I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Because he has a sanctified role and purpose for people that are sanctified, people that go, God, I want what you want for my life. I'm submitted to you. Is anybody following what I'm talking about tonight? Okay, good. I just need a little encouragement. I'm feeling self-conscious tonight. See, we can work through all this stuff, and it, and it, sounds, it sounds like a lot. But it, it is really so simple. I mean, the belt, it does not take a genius to figure this out, does it? Like, oh, it goes to the loops, and oh, you put the, okay, buckle, and oh, I got it, right? Like, it's not difficult to figure out. And this is what you have to understand about truth. 
truth as a, as a vague topic, a philosophical topic, is tough. But truth in the context of Christianity is really simple. Because when we talk about truth, what we're really talking about is Christ. So when Paul says that, that we should buckle the belt of truth around our waist, what he's really saying is make sure Christ is what's securing everything in your life. Make sure Christ is central. Make sure Christ is primary. Because if he is, then everything else in your life, the defenses that you need to defend yourself against the enemy, they will work and be more efficient if you make Christ primary, if you make him first. Jesus said, I, I read this earlier, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'll ask the musicians, you guys can go ahead and come up if you're listening or around or present or whatever. I think they all left the church. Oh, there they are. You know, as we're talking tonight about truth, it can be so challenging to, to put our finger on it, but it really, it is basic and it is simple. Uh, and I want to share a story with you. There was a, a basketball coach um, named, uh, <laughs> my mind just went blank, John Wooden, of course, greatest coach that ever lived. How did I forget that? John Wooden, he coached the UCLA Bruins, um, national championships. No one's ever matched his record. No one ever will. And he went on to become just a leadership guru as well. So after he retired from coaching basketball, he was in demand to help um, talk about leadership principles with businesses and companies and all kinds of things. And this was a man that in his heyday coaching UCLA, he was routinely getting the top players in America. So the top high school players in America wanted to go play for him. People like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Walton, um, some of the top players that have ever played in the NBA played for this man, John Wooden at UCLA. And John Wooden did something the first day of practice every day, I mean every year. He'd get a new batch of students in, first day of practice. Every year he would do the same thing. He would Go to the locker room, and most of them were already ready, and you go, no, 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 everybody take your shoes and socks off. And they'd look around and wonder what he was talking about, and he'd say, no, no, take your shoes and socks off. We're going to show you how to put your shoes and socks on correctly. Now, I don't know about you, <laughs> I've been putting my shoes and socks on for a while. And if you were one of the top athletes in the United States, and you walked into UCLA, into the locker room, and Coach John Wooden said, I'm gonna show you how to put your shoes and socks on, you might be a little bit incredulous. But they all did, they would take off their shoes and socks. And Coach Wooden would sit down and he would take off his shoes and socks as well. And he said, now I wanna show you guys, here's how you put on your sock. And he would demonstrate for them how to put their socks on. And he would put it around the toes and he would pull it up over the heel and he'd show them how it needs to be firm around the heel. And then he would show them, you don't want any wrinkles in the sock. And he would smooth it out and he'd pull any of the wrinkles out. And you don't want, you don't want one of the seams around the toe, the little toe especially, so you pull it over and you pull the sock up, and here's what you do with the shoe. And he would show them how to put the shoe on, how you lace it up right, and he would double knot it to make sure that there was no gap, that the shoe didn't rub, because you don't want to get a blister. And so he would demonstrate for them. These athletes, these kids that were intelligent and had to get into UCLA, he would show them how to put on their shoes and socks. Even though they'd been doing this for 18 years of their lives, he would demonstrate this. And then as he would walk out of the locker room, he would turn and say something like this, that's your first lesson. 
You see, if there are wrinkles in your socks or shoes aren't tied properly, you will develop blisters. With blisters, you'll miss practice. If you miss practice, you don't play. And if you don't play, we cannot win. And if you want to win championships, you want to take care of the smallest of details. No one knew winning championships better than